Please be seated. Well, happy Mother's Day to all of the women here today who have loved and nurtured someone along the way in life's journey. Thank you for who you are and for saying yes to that holy calling. I shared this story several years ago, but I think it bears repeating today. I once asked my nephew, who was at the time in fourth or fifth grade, what time he woke up for school, and he said about 6.30 in the morning. Um, and I asked him, are, are you up? Do you wake up on your own, or does your mom wake you up? To which he replied, she wakes me up. She is always awake. Today, if, if there is someone in your life that has always been awake for you, be sure to pick up a phone, call them, let them know. Our scripture this morning is the gospel reading from today's selection in the Revised Common Lectionary, from John chapter 10, verses 22 to 30, and I invite you to open up now in the Bibles that you'll find in your pews or the Bibles that you brought from home. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 22. At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I have told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me. But you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else, and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In our scripture this morning, we find Jesus walking in the temple in Solomon's portico at the time of the festival of dedication, better known to many of us as Hanukkah. It was a celebration of the rededication of the temple about 200 years earlier. Antiochus IV, a Greek Hellenistic king, had conquered Jerusalem and had instituted pagan worship within the temple itself, ultimately there erecting a statue of the god Zeus. A Jewish priest of the temple responded to these heretical acts that desecrated the temple, leading an insurrection now known as the Maccabean Revolt which resulted in the temple returning to Jewish rule and the rededication of the temple to the worship of the one true God. And so Hanukkah is this celebration of, of the returning of the temple in Jerusalem to true worship. And in it, they remember their fight against the heretical ways of the world. And so in our text for today, Jesus is walking through the temple during the time of Hanukkah. 
And some Jews gather around him and they say to Jesus, if you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. How does Jesus respond to that question? Hear his words again. I have told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me. He goes on to say, My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father and I are one, Jesus concludes. So what does that mean exactly? What did, what did that mean to them then and, and what does that mean to us now? One commentator that I read this past week as I was preparing said this, the preacher who fully understands the Father and I are one is the only one qualified to explain the section. This preacher is not that person. And so I'm not sure I'll be explaining this whole section, but, but what Jesus seems to be saying at the very least is that there is some significant relationship between him and God And more likely, in fact, that Jesus is the Messiah sent from God. At least that's how we read it. But how would they have heard it? You see, the very next verse, verse 31, just outside of our text for this morning, reads like this. The Jews took up stones against him. We can know that Jesus had said something quite upsetting. You see, Jesus, at a time of year when the Jewish people are celebrating their victory over the Hellenists who desecrated the temple with heretical acts, steps into the temple and pushes some buttons. Henri Teifel was a Polish Polish social psychologist who did work in order to understand how prejudices emerge amongst certain social groups. And one of his more famous studies is called the Minimal Group Paradigm Study. In which, in the study, a group of students were were broken arbitrarily into groups. There, There was no real rhyme or reason to how these groups were put together. And he did it in a number of different ways as he repeated the study. For example, in one study, he had the students look at the screen and flashed a number of dots before their face and asked them to estimate how many dots were on the screen. He then grouped them into two groups. He called overestimators and underestimators. And let me say again, the grouping is entirely arbitrary. He then brought all of the students back together into a group as a whole and asked them to divide an amount of money between the group members. Rather than dividing the money up equally among all of the students, what he found was that preference was shown to the group they had been previously assigned. 
as an overestimator or an underestimator, or to whatever other arbitrary grouping they chose. In other words, it was found that, that when these students were assigned into categories, into previously unheard of social categories, in-group favoritism and out-group discrimination occurred. Students sorted into these meaningless categories served as the basis for preference for those within and discrimination for those without. And it's what we see in our text today. We see a group of Jews who who are predisposed to oppose Jesus. They had self-selected into a group that is celebrating Hanukkah, that is opposing heresy in the temple. In fact, what they were celebrating predisposes them to distrust what Jesus is saying. And they miss it. Here Jesus is trying to communicate to them, I will give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And they miss it. They see it as us versus him. This categorization, it prevents true and honest conversation, open dialogue. It causes them to close their ears and to miss the truth that Jesus is trying to lay out for them. This week, many in our community are responding to the draft opinion of the Supreme Court that was published by Politico on Monday night in which it appears that the court is preparing to strike down a 1973 Roe v. Wade decision. Protesters on both sides gathered yesterday in front of the Fort Lauderdale courthouse building uh, here in Fort Lauderdale. The issue of abortion is deeply personal for people and, and can be a near impossible topic about which to have civil discourse. Over the last half century, the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America has wrestled as a denomination as to how to create a space for open and honest conversation while also preserving the rights of women and children. We believe that all life is precious. In 2006, the General Assembly published the following statement highlighting the nuances involved in this issue and its deeply spiritual nature. When an individual woman faces the decision whether to terminate a pregnancy, the issue is intensely personal and may manifest itself in ways that do not reflect public rhetoric or do not fit neatly into medical, legal, or policy guidelines. Humans are empowered by the Spirit to prayerfully make significant moral choices, including the choice to continue or end a pregnancy. Human choices should not be made in a moral vacuum, but must be based on Scripture, faith, 
and Christian ethics. For any choice, we are accountable to God. However, when we err, God offers to forgive us. Hear that last sentence again. For any choice, we are accountable to God. However, when we err, God offers to forgive us. The statement goes on to say that we as a church have a responsibility to provide public witness and to offer guidance, counsel, and support to those who make or interpret laws and public policies about abortions and problem pregnancies. What does that mean for us as a church? We do not make public policy here in the church. The the church is a relational network. It is a, a community We are in the business here of building Christ-centered community. And and so what if, as a congregation, our public witness was to model what it looks like to have this and other hard conversations well? As we continue to pastor to and provide support to all of God's people. What would it look like if, if as a church we were to create an environment for healthy dialogue and conversation and not just on this particular topic but in all things? Our greater community is in desperate need of places where people can gather in loving community and have hard conversations. It simply isn't happening out there. Another story in the latest news cycle is, is Elon Musk's attempt to purchase the social media platform Twitter. And, and Elon Musk has signaled that under his ownership, the company would allow all speech that the First Amendment protects. Unfortunately, this still does not create the context for the, for the kind of dialogue that I am talking about. The algorithms which govern social media posts, which which govern the social media posts that you see on your feed, do not elevate and promote discourse on challenging topics. In fact, what you see on your social media feed is governed by what you have viewed previously. And so, what is it that we view? What are those things that get our attention Jay Van Babel of of NYU and William Brady of uh, a Yale psychologist have been doing a joint study on outrage in social media. And and what they found in the case of Twitter is that for every moral and emotional word used uh, in a tweet like hate, evil, shame, or profanity, it increased retweeting by 15 to 20% which is positive feedback to the person posting. Not only does it increase retweeting, it also uh, increases the likelihood of likes and shares on Facebook. Common sense suggests and research has demonstrated that polarizing incendiary posts on social media, the types of content that do not cultivate an atmosphere of helpful conversation, garner more engagement than other less provocative content. Thus, people 
politicians, thought leaders are rewarded for creating polarizing and incendiary content as opposed to content that will promote true dialogue. In a recent blog post, marketing strategist David Scott puts it this way, if you are curious about a conspiracy theory that your friend shared, you, you click on it and then find more similar content and then you will be served up even more. The technology is optimized to give you what you linger on and for many people, that turns out to be what makes them angry. He calls this phenomena social amplification. It is not those ideas which are most true, most helpful, most beneficial that are amplified, but rather those ideas which are most controversial, most hurtful, most incendiary and most polarizing. Friends, the challenges before us in creating an atmosphere where real dialogue can happen about hard things does not simply end with social media. The challenges are significant. We still are a community that's struggling to gather in person. You look around in the church and worship and you go, where is everyone? You run into people outside that you haven't seen in church in a couple of years, and you say, where are you going now? You must be going somewhere else. No, we're just doing other things. And it's not that people are avoiding church. It's just that we have gotten out of the habit. And this is not unique to us. I was talking with a pastor friend just a week ago, and he said, Nick, I, I can't get our elders to come to worship. But it's not just the church either. Last week at the Floridian, I, I ran into some leadership from another civic organization here in Fort Lauderdale, and I just poked my head over the table and said, hello, and how are you all doing? And they said, well, we're, we're meeting to try and figure out how to reinvigorate our meetings, how to get people to come back. So what do we do? The challenge before us is can we create a community of faith to foster the kind of atmosphere that allows for the kind of discourse that we need. So let me ask the question, what does it look like? What does it look like to love each other well? What if we could begin? What if we could begin creating this kind of atmosphere by agreeing on something specific? What if we could choose to self-select ourselves into a single group? Just before the Jews try and stone Jesus, he says this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Evan Hansen is a Tony Award winning musical that held its first performance in 2015. And it's about a young teenager navigating growing up in the midst of the digital age. And he makes a number of mistakes and 
misleads a number of the people closest to him into believing that he was someone that he simply was not. And there's this pivotal scene where he is struggling with being honest with his mother. He says, I lied about so many things. And she says, you can tell me. He shakes his head sadly and says, you'll hate me. She responds and says, oh, Evan. He says, you should. If, if, if you know what I tried to do, if you knew who I am, how just broken I am. And his mother says, I already know you, and I love you. What if we start there? What if we self-select ourselves into a group of broken people loved by God? What if in sitting down to have hard conversations we begin simply by saying, I love you because God loves you and God loves me. Now let's talk. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.